Good morning, church. Good to see everyone. If you want to open the Bible to Romans chapter 8, we'll do the final verse of Romans chapter 8 this morning. Uh, do you want to just uh, emphasize one of the announcements there? The native uh, meeting on the 16th. If you're a native here at the Hill, I want to lovingly exhort you to make every effort you can to be here and have something that's necessarily going to pull you away. I would love for you to be here. We just want to look back over 2020 and think about where we've gone and kind of here into 2021, do some vision casting. We have to see each other a ton of members. We want to do that. So I invite you now to even try to make it, mark that down in the corner and make sure you're accepted here for that. Now, I think I was a kid and even today, I must say, I'm going to make my phone. My parents, while getting getting caught by a train, was really upsetting to them. Uh, it was always a enjoyment for me. I had no sense of time, and you know, I didn't have any schedule, so I wouldn't wait for anything. Uh, so I enjoyed every minute of being caught by a train. It was fascinating to watch the train go by, hear the ground move, and just observe it up close and personal as it went by. But I had a question. I was intrigued by something always. Why was the engine sometimes in the front? And why are we going to sometimes in the rear? Sometimes the train seems to be getting pulled along the tracks, and sometimes it seems to be getting pushed. Well, then, so later that I kind of learned about and thought through the pull cool aspect of a locomotive and how that works, and even, you know, would pull, was able to, some of able to pull their cargo to one location and simply turn around and push their cargo back the other way. It makes sense, but to me, I had a lot of questions. But in fact, it's been said that the train, the train proves to be actually more efficient when the engine is pushing from the rear rather than pulling from the front. Last few weeks, we have we've been studying what I see as Paul's theological train of thought dealing with sanctification in Romans chapter 58. And this morning, we're going to come, we, we come to the final verses of this most wonderful chapter. I hope and pray you have been blessed by it as I have been over these last couple of weeks. We're thinking through what does it mean to become who we are in Christ. We think through our sanctification in light of our justification. Sanctification is only in godliness has been our sin. Really, it's actually kind of like box cars moving along a theological track. We have followed Paul's logic through this flow of thought through these two chapters. And chapter 6, we began and we focus on our new relationship with sin. Believers not being under the law, but under grace. We saw that we are dead to sin, alive to God in Christ. Romans chapter 7, we, we unpack our relationship to the law now as believers. We have been released from the law to belong to the risen Christ. Romans chapter 8, we were lovingly, graciously confronted with the marvelous work of the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. We have grown for glory. But we do so with God's guarantee of glory. What do for? He works all things for our good. This morning we come to the end of this what I'm calling a theological frame, where we discover the, the engine, the engine that propels us, that propels the Christian life along the way. I think what we come to this morning is the, the sustaining experience 
What do you understand to be inseparable and unbreakable? Because the word you find sense. I'll spend the next rest of our time in these beautiful next eight verses unpacking this statement. That the sustaining appearance of our salvation found in the exaltation of God's inseparable love for us in Christ. As we think about sanctification, as we round out the end of this series, the coming of the Lord is called the sustainer of our salvation. And the exaltation of God's inseparable love for us in Christ. Romans chapter 11, we're going to read in verse 31. We're going to read down to the end of the chapter. We're going to read the most familiar words in this city. All right, by the Holy Spirit, in verse 31. What then shall we say to this thing? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he is raised. And at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? It is written. For your sake, we have been killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors to him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor evil nor evil, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from. The love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we pause after reading every word. Lord, we know there is no spiritual life apart from you. But we have our Bible open to us. Holy Spirit, would you do work in our sins? Anyone here who does not know you, do not call them to the sex of time. Do not save them. Do not sanctify them. The preaching of your word. Lord, I'm sure the truth of this morning is simply to leave that word. I want to accept the truth. If you thought that Christ is the other before, for he is the only one of his mouth, and his church, and his mercy. Now, as I said, I want to get out of the way of this place the best I can. I'm not going to provide as much of an outline this morning because I'm not getting away. We're just going to walk through these four unanswerable questions where I want to call them. 
I'm going to do my outline. I'm going to walk through four, four main questions. But before we do that, Paul's four questions are preceded by another question. The first one is this What shall we say to these things? In these things is essential. And given the exalted status of these final verses, the these things have application, no doubt, for everything Paul has set up into this point in the letter. But the then, or the therefore, he appoints the fact that Paul most certainly has chapter 8, and I'll go to the last week in mind. The these things is a reference to the golden chain of salvation from verse 30. Which lies by God. And those who need redemption, he also calls. And those who need called, he also justified. And those who need justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? That's a lot of the false doctrine. And so before we dive into this text, I want you to consider that question. Come directly. What shall you say to these things? How did you respond? My challenge you this morning as a pastor to insist on applying the truth that you believe for it. I challenge you to remain on guard against your faith becoming merely serious. This, this question here begins Paul's concluding words. And he's actually dealing with sanctification. It's important to us. So, while sanctification requires us studying and knowing the truth of the Bible, it demands much more. It demands our response. The very application of these things in our lives. For you to become who you are in Christ, these truths must go beyond the mind, to the heart, and out to the hand. True biblical knowledge demands we be bold enough to apply the great truths of our faith to our daily lives. So, my challenge this morning as we close out this series, we've been reading for a couple months, is for you to insist. I'm taking the truth of the Word of God and trying to make your life, especially in light of criticism, condemnation, difficulties in your life, which I've been addressed here this morning. So, what shall we say? What shall you say about God's great justifying work in your life? What shall you say about your new relationship with Him, no longer a slave, but a son of God? What shall you say about the Holy Spirit's work in your life? What can you say about your predestination, your calling, your justification, and your glorification? How will these truths take and inform your identity? How will they inform your life, your singleness, your marriage, your parenting, your grandparenting, your difficulties, your broken relationships, etc.? What shall you say to this thing? I think that the case is the major insistence on our part of applying God's truth to our lives. We must do the hard work of forcing the truth from our minds into the crevices of our hearts, which can transform our thinking and thinking. And Paul's going to help us do this by himself. We're going to do it by way of what I see as four unanswerable questions. The first one is this Who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Notice Paul did not say 
I don't think you can turn your mind against that. It pleased the Lord to bring the cross of God. It pleased the Lord to subject his beloved son to a sin bearing, sacrificial, horrible, substitutionary death for him.
to the only one who actually matters. We're not achieving, we're justified. And the omnipotent, sovereign, righteous judge of all the earth is not guilty. And so we're not guilty. Paul's words are clearly referenced by the 58 and 9. He was indicating his will. Who will, who will continue with me? Let's stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him cover and come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is the covenant? Behold, all of them. And we're out like a garment and mock for each of us. But we won't be called the people of God guilty. They will work out the God. And then the next thing. Christian God has justified you. And we've, we've talked about that. We've explained that in multiple places in the sermon too. What does it mean to be justified? The same before God, righteous, that He makes us righteous in Christ, that He wraps us in His righteousness. Let me just take a look at this here and think about it. For Corporal C, what does it mean to be justified? It means that God stands behind the bench. He's the judge of all the earth and the holy and righteous judge. We stand on the other side and our sin. And we stand guilty for our sin. And God of the Bible rightfully slaps the gavel down and says, guilty because of sin. Everyone in this room is guilty before a holy and righteous God of our sin. He's the righteous God. We're sinners before His before His gift. But here's the gospel truth. The judge of the Bible does nothing like he's ever seen another judge do. This judge stands up out of his seat, comes around the bench on the day of and stands in our place and takes the very sentence that grew up upon himself. The judge takes that sentence. He takes the very sentence of death that each one of us deserves and takes it upon his son on the cross. And now we stand wrapped in his righteousness. And the judge now stands to death to gather free, clear, by our righteousness or by the blood of Christ. That's what justification is. We stand right before God. Because the judge is made of God. Because the gavel of God's hand takes the curse. And anyone tries to achieve the Christian, go back to the gospel. The number of them is Paul now moves to a similar question, but with a different twist as he reflects the diamond a little bit so without the guardian of May. Who is to condemn us? Because each one tells us that sometimes our hearts cry and condemn us. And when Satan will try and accuse and condemn us, we just talked about that. Truth and enemy, they try to condemn us. But they will never forget the law. Because you will wrap in these four layers of protection I see here that Paul gives us. First layer of protection. Christ is the one who died. The very one who can rightfully condemn us. The only one who can rightfully condemn us. I've actually been condemned in our place. Jesus Christ died for his soul. He paid the penalty for our sins. And he paid it in full. It was finished with his cry from the soul. 
and Jesus is just satisfied the holy wrath of the Father to our sin. Jesus took our condemnation. By his death, he paid in full the penalty for the sins which could all be lifted before us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But there's no protection for us. Christ Jesus not only died, more than that, he was raised. The resurrection forever marks God's stamp of approval over Christ's work. The resurrection takes away all doubt that Jesus' work was somehow not sufficient or not complete. Jesus satisfies every demand of God's holiness for us. He lived the perfect But he died and turned death. And he was raised in new life. But Jesus is made sure it's also ongoing. He was raised to set the right now. And he was the right man of the Father. The following our Bible reading plan, we we read Hebrews chapter one on Monday of this week, and in verse three of chapter one we read these words. Speaking of Jesus, after making purification for sin, who Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Master of Time, having become as much more superior to angels as the as the name he has inherited is more excellent than that. Jesus taking his seat at the right hand of God, the place of all authority, the declaration of the Father's satisfaction and the work of Christ on the cross. Jesus was supremely exalted, given the name of every name for the people. Christ occupies the seat of the highest authority and honor, and he functions on our behalf. What is he even including for the Christian? And it can be anything for his heavenly advocate. Jesus continues to secure the benefits of our salvation for us. Jesus interceding for us. We've already learned how the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And now we see that the Savior is interceding for us as well. Brother Mary McCain said, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not hear a million of you. Do you believe that? If you're telling that, you can hear Jesus' voice praying for you right now in the next room. You will hear him. You can hear him. Yet this thing makes no difference. He is praying for me all the more. That is encouraging. That is really encouraging. And I get some emails and cards and calls from you guys telling me you're praying for me, you're praying for my family. It's really encouraging. But what's more encouraging? Because I'll never get a phone call and text an email from anyone saying the same thing. I know I'm perfectly afraid for all the time. Jesus is receiving my life. And he will. Who wants to separate from the love of Christ? John Scott says, if we have been climbing the grand staircase in 31 to 39, and these final verses in 35 to 39 must be the top step. Paul's response to this final unanswerable question is twice as long as the others. And maybe he moves here from doctrinal truth to pastoral care. 
Paul was right to the heart of it. That motion should never lead to coldness or callousness. It is always alive in our hearts. Isn't this what we tend to question most in things of difficulty? We tend to question most in things of difficulty. We tend to question other things. We tend to question the question of his love for us. What we see here is that Jesus does more than defend us. Jesus does more than defend you. He loves you. With an unbreakable certain love. He's entered a relationship with you, and because of that, nothing can separate you from him. Paul does provide a litany of possibilities. That could separate us from the love of Christ to make it come. But before we kind of look at each one of them, please note the precision of Paul's ministry. Paul does not say what can separate us from Christ. No, he says. He asks who what can separate us from the love of Christ. Love is what binds us to Christ. Love is what informs our relationship to Him. He keeps us because He loves us. It is the love of God in Christ which binds us and not your obedience to Him. Not your righteousness to Him. His love for you and Christ. This is the motivation of the Christian life. This is the engine that you propel us along the track of sanctification. And it's a, it is the sustaining assurance of our salvation. I'm going to read it 35 and 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's the relation of the sin. But the teaching and saying and making us a dangerous thing. The worst decisions of all this goes on. Because God will teach you to strive. No! In all these things, you're more than conscious of things you've got. Christ will endure death, no life, no end of no rules, no things present, no things to come, no power, no sight, no death, no anything else in our creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. All this is tribulation. And we'll just keep those pressures, troubles, because of stress and hardship. It could be outward conflict, it could be inward distress in our soul. What matters is the truth that neither can, neither will separate us from the love of Christ. You feel alone. You feel unloved. You feel cheated, full of distress or anger. I love you. And for you, and God's Christians. But you see, the real possibility of the world is that there's a real possibility to make Christians around the world. It's a real possibility to them. It's not really about the faith persecution. What does the human life allow? What does the human life allow? What does the human life Wickedness refers to destitute or poverty. 
only thing they want to be certain about. Anything they might need to speak over this type of certain thing. I don't believe this morning. I want you to know this thing is not about wishful thinking. We don't have some serious expectations. This thing is about projecting and entering ourselves. It's about humble certainty about our relationship with God's importance. It's about assurance of God's love for us. That has that real sustain us in this life, no matter what comes our way. That's what Christianity is. Nathan's point is one preacher says, Paul here puts the historical pedal to the homiletical pedal to convince us of the unsuffable love of God in Christ that is real. He provides us four pairs of threats of separation. That's what he is. Blinded, searching, confident, persuaded, but neither death nor life. Jesus no rule. I can serve him with no power, no hope, no But anything else in all creation that is separated from the love of God is definitely the love of human existence. And the demon, the spiritual realm, the name separated. These treasure things to come. If any event in history separated, any power, any spiritual realm, any dark power. Oh, any of those words come to me here. No power of hell, no scheme of man, and it will fuck me from him. It's not being all encompassing information of everything. Nothing in heaven, hell, or anything of all creation. Separating the love of God in Christ. Nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Paul is certain. It's in you. Paul is a man of unprecedented faith. He possessed a strong forged word. Paul is a man who is on the mission. Beating the Jews, locking up the faith of God, having shared gospel with the Jews, the Hindus. And the Lord keeps living, and he makes more life than me. Well, I'm going to kill you, you're a guy of God. He can do nothing with his God. Why then? Because he's possessed of the same concern to the love of Christ. No one can take that from you. And this came about through all these things. What I to do difficulties were just as found in the Hardship is where our hearts are developed as Christians. The stress is where deep experience and certainty in the love of Christ is forced in the I want to end on one of the different ways today. I want to read a, a, a longer story 